Well, hello. How is everybody? How was your week? Okay, good. Well, let's get into the Bible. Uh, as Tom said, my name is Jason uh, Connor. It's a privilege to be here with you. Um, this Memorial Day weekend, Justin and Amy are taking advantage of that, doing some traveling, um, and it's my privilege to step in uh, as we look into the Word of the Lord. Believe it or not, we're in the same series. We're just, this is how lazy I was this week. We preached this text last Sunday, so I didn't have to do anything this week, all right? So I, this should be twice as good with half the work, so it just really worked out. We didn't even plan it that way, so God's good that way. We're, we are going to be in inverted kingdom. We'll be in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, so that's where we're going to be. You can put your thumb there. And as we, as we enter into this, can I, uh, let me just say this. Um, you're loved. Uh, this has not been the greatest year, has it? Uh, this has not been the greatest year for Sojourn. Um, I know that, and I just want you to know, because th- that you're loved, and that we stand with you. Justin and I actually came to Portico about the same time. I had this much to do with planting Sojourn. I was brand new. Uh, but one thing I got to know about Justin is he loves Fairfax, and he has a clear vision for how the gospel is going to change lives, one person at a time. And the running narrative that, that we have a lot of times as believers is that when there's pain and when there's struggle, uh, when the foundations start to, to crumble a little bit, God's gone. God's not in it anymore. That's the narrative that we have, is that pain means that God stepped outside and we're on our own until we get it figured out. That is never the narrative when we're trusting in Christ. Never. I mean, Jesus is preaching a kingdom where dependence is the goal. Therefore, weakness is always an asset. When we find ourselves weak and without options, either individually, errors of people, that is when we meet God. Can I just say that for a minute? That is when I have met God in the most profound ways, when I just don't have options. So I want to encourage you. Uh, we love you guys. We love Justin and Amy. We stand with you, uh, as do so many churches in our region. And God will use this season in your life and in your church to build a culture in this place that could come no other way. All we can do is death. Jesus is about resurrection. So I just want to encourage you guys for that. And it's, it's my privilege to be here. Jesus has just finished delivering the Beatitudes. He's been speaking to his disciples. He's been speaking to the rest of the crowds that were within earshot. And these Beatitudes, as you've seen, are counter-cultural. They are not instinctive or intuitive. In fact, they confront and reimagine and sometimes rediscover what it means to be blessed. And if nothing else, we've seen this. We are blessed or divinely happy only when... We are living and believing that we have God's divine approval. Not just an idea that we have his divine approval through Christ. And these Beatitudes, they will invert every assumption that you have about life and the pursuit of happiness. Now, today is different. Jesus is shifting his focus. He's no longer just talking to the grouts. In fact, he is shifting his focus onto those who are following him, specifically at least the 12, those disciples that have left everything and that are following him and that are sitting at his feet listening. And today he's going to tell this troop of former fishermen, zealots, 
national traitors, those that would drop their nets and follow him. He's going to tell them this. Your life will have eternal impact. So he's going to tell them. This is what we're going to learn today. So let's jump right in. We're going to be in Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16. I'm just going to read this to you. This is where you guys are, right? Good. Make sure I didn't get that wrong. Okay. This is Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16. Jesus is talking about salt and light. This is what he says. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I wish we could figure this out, honestly. I wish we could read your word. I wish we could read these beatitudes and figure them out. And not only that, live by them. For they are your character. But we can't. So we come before you, Lord, as a people who need you. We need your spirit now to illuminate this word. We, we, are, we are asking you, Lord, to open up your word that we might behold its treasure. We give you this time, Lord God, we praise you. Lift us up in the name of Jesus. Amen. Everyone wants to have a life that matters. Do you want a life that matters? I do. I want a life that matters. This desire to have a life that actually makes an impact or a difference, this is normal. This is a symptom of being alive. This is common to everyone. Uh, author and playwright T.S. Eliot says it this way. He says, we don't actually fear death. We fear that no one will notice our absence and that eventually we will disappear without a trace. Now, Deloitte, a large employer around us, they said it in a different way. They actually did a study, and they found that 50% of millennials, I hate labels, but I'm just going to throw that out there, so 50% of our city basically says they would take a pay cut if they could find a job that was in line with their values, if they could use their skills for good, if they could somehow, through their labor, make this city more compassionate, innovative, and sustainable. 50% pay cut. I don't know. Would you, would you do that? Would you, if you're working for Deloitte, I feel like you're at a disadvantage here because they know this about you. But Would you do this? W- w- where does that come from? Where does this desire to actually make a difference come from? This is from God. This is inherent in your DNA. This is how you were designed. And yet, this desire, which is natural to us, brings anxiety, fear, and trauma, especially when we don't live up to expectations. First and foremost, our own expectations. My success is never enough. We know this. You may be successful, but that success will wane, and it's never enough. And then it becomes bitter. Which mountain do I take next? It becomes pride or failure. 
our own expectations can lead to intense, paralyzing fear. Because if I fail at something, it just confirms this narrative that I am a failure. I will not be able to accomplish this. Or what about, the world that, what, what about how the world expects you to live? What if you, as a believer, are misunderstood and not appreciated because of your relationship with God? What about that? See, this was a decision that Jesus' disciples faced. If they were going to listen to him, if they were actually going to follow him, they risked being misunderstood, hated, cast out. But even so, God would use every single one of them to bless and enrich entire generations. And we're sitting here because of this. So modern-day disciples, those who would follow Jesus, face the same decision. How far will they go? How much will they lose to see other people meet and see who they have seen? See, Jesus affirms every desire that we have to make a difference. This, you can't walk away from it. You will live, your, regardless of what your worldview is, everybody lives life as though there is a purpose. Jesus affirms this, but he, he pushes it. He elevates it to the desire of making an eternal impact. He takes this desire that we have that's natural, he pushes up to eternity, and he completely inverts it with two words. You are. He doesn't say be this. He doesn't say strive to do this. He says you are. Did you catch that? You are salt. You are light. See, Jesus is making something very clear to us. Disciples have eternal impact by allowing God into every relationship that we have. We, disciples, followers of Christ, will have eternal impact when we allow God into every relationship that we have. And this text is going to open it up pretty clearly. Here's three ways we're going to see this. First is that we are blessed to be a blessing. All these, these beatitudes, blessed are those, blessed are those. We are blessed as a people. For trusting in Christ, we're blessed to be a blessing. Secondly, the problems we conceal God. This is, this is also natural. We will conceal God rather than reveal him. And lastly, Jesus brings God into our relationship with God himself. And we'll explain that. But as we move into the Sermon on the Mount, as you move into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins answering a question that nobody is actually asking. You ever had that? When somebody asks a question that nobody in the room is asking, that's a red flag. It probably matters. It's an important question. It's a blind spot. And what is the question that Jesus is implicitly answering here? Why has God blessed you? Why is it? Blessed are those. Blessed are those. Why has God blessed you? And this is how he answers it. We are to be salt and light. So the first point is this. You are blessed. If you are trusting in Christ, you are blessed to be a blessing. Now, coming out of these Beatitudes, you should have no qualms, no questions about who you are with God. You should know that. Who are you to God? You are blessed. You are a beloved heir of God. You belong to him. You are not seeking blessing. You have it. You have his divine approval through Christ. We should know that. These beatitudes give us weighty commands. Be merciful. Be meek. Be a peacemaker. But all of these are held together by God's unwavering commitment to his people. See, we are blessed because God has been merciful to us. He's been a peacemaker to us. We have peace through the blood of the cross. 
He's been meek. He answered not. That we might be merciful, that we might become peacemakers. His commitment to us is what holds all this together. In today's passage, we have to remember that, but today's passage tells you who you are to the rest of the world. If we don't know who we are to God, this is not going to work. We will try to, we will turn it around. We will try to prove who we are to God by how we're living in the world, and that does not work. We are blessed to be a blessing. Well, how? This passage is great. Jesus does all the hard work. I love this. I love it when Jesus is preaching. He uses imagery and a metaphor that is so easy, for the most part, to understand. It's ubiquitous. Everybody understands this. It's familiar to everyone, to us, and especially to those in who he's talking to. This is first century Palestine. Most of these guys and whoever's listening were Jewish, and it's familiar to them as well. Salt and light. They're both essential to life. They were then and they are now. No person or no culture can exist without adequate amounts of salt and light. It's absolutely necessary. So if we want to understand the fullness and the weight of what Jesus is saying, we need to understand this imagery. What does it mean that we are salt and light? And by understanding that, we'll understand the fullness of his words. So first, salt. You're the salt of the earth. What is that? Well, remember, take notice. You can't jump out of this. You are. It does not say go and be salt. It just doesn't. You can't make it say that. It says you are salt of the earth. So first and foremost, Jesus is pushing indicative. These are identity-building words. This is who you are. This truth should anchor you. We should understand this. You are salt. He's not urging his disciples to go and be something that they are not. He's urging them to be authentic to he has made them through grace. So what is salt? Well, salt serves many functions in the ancient world as it does today. It's extremely valuable. It's basically inconsequential. It's on every table that you go to to eat. It's in everything to eat, essentially, but nobody notices it, right? It's, it's the unseen thing. It was a little more visible in the ancient world. They even used it as a medium of exchange. Um, you've heard this uh, expression, worth his salt, the idea that salt is very valuable. So what does it do? It does a lot of things, but uh, because Jesus ties it to light, I think it makes it very clear that this is a benefit. So what is salt? First and foremost, it, it does these two things. It draws out potential, and it preserves. Salt draws out potential of everything that it touches, and it preserves things. Try eating a dinner. Have you done this? Have you ever run out of salt? Does anybody ever run out of salt? Occasionally it happens, but try eating a dinner. Great ingredients, organic, whatever you like. Absolutely no salt, though. You keep it out. No salt in the preparation, no salt available to you. It's horrible. Come on, it's not great. I eat too much salt, guilty as charged. I know that's bad, but I love it. I love salt. Um, But if you don't use any salt ever in your food, Um, it doesn't bring out the potential. Even Job says this. Job says it. He says, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? No, it cannot. Salt has the power. This is what salt does. It has the power to take um, different flavors and make them explode and co-mingle and join together to form something great, something that you want to eat, something you want to taste. It takes that food and it brings it to full potential. Does anybody here put salt on a watermelon? 
I'm not, yes, thank you. That is a wise man back there. Anybody else? Salt and a watermelon or maybe a cantaloupe? Okay. So I'm the only one who does this, but it, it, it draws out the potential. You will taste something in a watermelon, I'm not joking, that you don't taste when you don't, when, when you don't put the salt on it. So it pulls out potential. Secondly, it preserves. And this is the big idea, too. Listen, with lack of refrigeration in the ancient Near East, salt was critical to preserving foodstuffs, especially meat, but everything. You see, salt kept entire civilizations around because of its ability to preserve foods. How did it do this? It made the food an inhospitable, it became inhospitable to bacteria. Bacteria just can't survive when something is brined, when there's salt in it. So bacteria doesn't grow, and they used it to preserve food. It was, it was critical for them. It was critical. We see this even in our nation. Um, when settlers arrived, they noticed that Native Americans would brine salmon and smoke it, or they would brine pork. They would heavily salt it. Um, it it's something that every culture does because it preserves that which you want to keep. So... Oh, what do we do with this? Here's the, here's the big idea. We'll drill down on it. But when, the, when you as a believer, when you dare to embody the norms of the kingdom, these beatitudes that Jesus is talking about, in your public life, people, neighborhoods, places of work, cities, regions, churches will benefit and thrive. The culture that God has placed you in, wherever you are, potential will be drawn out. It will be preserved because people are witnessing the king at work in your life. And they are witnessing the kingdom through your life. They're seeing it. They're seeing it. You are blessed to be a blessing. A quick example on this. If you're in a workplace where you cut corners. It's just how we do things here. I've heard this from construction workers. I've seen it in my own career. Um, and you don't do it. You stand out. Like, uh, no, nah, I'm going to do that. Why not? That's how we do it. Why would you not do that? Why would you not steal? Why would you not cut the corner here? You're going to stand out. But what actually happens is you benefit your employer. You benefit its mission, and you stand out. Something will be different about you. It preserves, it draws out. We are blessed to be a blessing. That's not going far enough, though. We need to understand um, what is being salt. Like, how would, we, how would we boil that down? It's pursuing what's best for others. Because you're taken care of. Did you know that? You're taken care of. You can afford to lose everything locally because you have everything eternally. That's what's what this kingdom does. You can afford that. You can afford to pursue what's best for others because you've been taken care of. Do, do this and watch people and things around you thrive. Watch them reach potential. Watch God preserve things through you. Do, do you want that freedom? This is something that I had as, as I, was, I was preparing to, to preach this at Portico. I'd ask myself, do I want that freedom? Do I even value that freedom? Do I want the freedom to pursue what's best for others? Usually at the expense of what's best for me. Do you want that freedom? Because this is where Jesus is going. 
Secondly, light. He says, you are the light of the world. Light, again, essential to life. You must have it. If there's not light, life will not thrive. God even begins his story in Genesis with light. Let there be light. And he ends in Revelation as redemption comes to a close, as history comes to a close, by removing all traces of darkness. And between these two events, we see it light at least used 200 times, a lot of times to describe God himself. Listen to how it closes here in Revelation 22. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, Matthew quickly picked up on this, and he identifies Jesus as the light of the world. Not just the light, but he has come into the world to expose darkness and to rip people from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom or the kingdom of light. He says this early on, Matthew 4, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, that being Jesus, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So what does light do? Well, two primary things. It exposes and it reveals. When I get up at night, If I don't have light in my bedroom, I will break every toe on my foot. I've done it before. I hate dark rooms. Maybe it's because I'm afraid. I I don't know. But light exposes things that are concealed in darkness. Yes, God shows us the pathway of life. His word, his spirit reveals, always reveals and exposes things in our lives, in our environment, that are extremely damaging. Light exposes. Um, And secondly, and probably more importantly, light reveals. Light reveals that which is good and beautiful and worth pursuing. It's not enough to be removed from danger. It's not enough to say, don't go there. That's a bad path. You need the light to see that. It's never enough. Light reveals that which is good, beautiful, worth pursuing. This is what we see. And Jesus used two metaphors to explain this beautifully. A lamp. A lamp in a home. Now, it, this doesn't resonate with us too much because we have electricity. In the ancient Near East, there was no electricity. Yes? So you did your business during the day. A lot of times you would even eat in the day, your primary meal. Because when it goes dark, things become exponentially more difficult. Imagine, imagine setting a table for eight in your home in pitch blackness. Dark. Nothing. Imagine setting a table for eight doing this, cooking, and inviting your friends over, your neighbors over, and sitting down to have a meal. You just can't do it. it it's, it's a disaster. It doesn't work. A lamp in a home was put up so this lamp could actually benefit the people that were near it, that you could see what was good, that you could see what you were going to eat. It helps everyone. And Jesus ties us also to a city on a hill. Um, making the kingdom visible to everyone. Just like a lamp goes up on a table to benefit those in the home. Jesus says, a city and a hill cannot be hidden. Well, if you're on a moonless night and there are absolutely no lights in that city, I mean none, you can't see it. It's invisible. You will never see it. Um, You see, the kingdom becomes visible that city becomes visible, not because of the hill, but because of the light. Because of the light. 
you guys have heard have William Wilberforce. Yes? Old head, late 1700s in Britain. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He wasn't too different from us. He was wealthy. He had good education. He had charisma. What happens when you have money, you're well-heeled, and you have that thing when you have charisma? What happens, right? You get elected. You, you get elected to office. That, that's the way it works. Such was his. This was his aspirations. He went to school. Um, he had everything that the world valued. God got a hold of this man at some point during his education, and everything in life became distasteful. He tired of going to parties. He, he, his relationship with God pushed on him, and he just couldn't stand that his life would be wasted talking about trivialities, as he said. And he saw something that he found unacceptable. It was the slave trade in the British Empire. And he decided that God had put him in position, had given him his money, his fame, his education, and positioned him in parliament so that he could do something about it. He didn't go to seminary. He actually let God use him right there. And as he started to stand against slavery, did you know that everybody hated him? Government hated him because it was a whole economic system built on slavery. The exporters in West Africa hated him because they were exporting somewhere between 35 to 50,000 people across the Atlantic every year. The economy in the, in the colonies hated him because they had an economic system built on slavery as well. He served society completely without compromising truth, and he became persona non grata. Everybody hated him, and he stuck to it, and he was unsuccessful for years, for years. But he believed that God had a purpose for him in his calling to serve in parliament that way. And eventually, the British Empire banned it, and that was the tipping point for everyone. That is being light and salt, because when you have truth and it's concealed, it actually becomes darkness becomes darkness. Do you know? There's no light and, and, and twilight. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. I had a friend of mine, we were talking um, oh, about three weeks ago, and we were just having dinner, and he said, hey, you know, his, his daughter's like maybe two years old. He said, I, I don't know, I, uh, how do I protect my daughter and disciple my daughter in a culture um, that's losing its mind over gender identity? So I don't know how to protect her, how to teach her, how to guide her, how to engage people. Let's be salt and light. Be, be a peacemaker. Are, are we learning people's story? As you learn people's stories, no matter what, how people identify, what you're going to find is everyone's the same exact thing that you do. They want peace. They want what Jesus is giving. They want what only Jesus can give. We look through that, see the person, love them, serve them. Truth, light, salt. Who is God calling you to see, love, and serve? This, this is some of the pressure that this text puts on us. Who has God put in your life, in your relationships, that he is calling you to see them, to love them, and serve them? I wish it were that easy. I wish we could close up. But the second point here is we conceal God rather than reveal him. Don't we? Don't we do this? 
because it's risky. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself ceases to follow him. This happens when Christians try to become something they are not, which is this, wise in the world's eyes. I need to keep some respect here. And Jesus says, when this happens, salt loses its saltiness, which is essentially impossible. It's very stable. But listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. When we become unseen, when God becomes unseen in our lives, we become useless in our relationships. When we refuse to live as salt what we are, we become useless in our relationships. Because, why? Because we are concealing the greatest relationship that we have, which is to God through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? This is what we're designed for. Light that is hidden, a city on a hill cannot be hidden unless it has no light. If, if it is dark and there's no light in that city, you will not see it. Um, I used to fly for a living. That's what I used to do before the Lord called me into ministry. And I remember on one particular flight, we were coming to Lynchburg, Virginia. And it was, it was the weather we have ha- been having like for the last couple of weeks. It was very similar to that. It was late at night. It was very low. Um, the ceiling was very low. Visibility was horrible. It was, it was foggy, etc. You know, stormy, dark and stormy night. We're coming in, um, but they have, you know, uh, landing systems that, which, that bring us right down to the runway, about 200 feet above the runway, and then we break out, and you can see the runway, and you land. It's very, very, very fun. However, what we need is we need that runway, especially at night in the fog, to be lit up. If those runway lights are, are, are very critical in us in breaking out and making a safe landing. So we were coming into Lynchburg that night, and we were late. Big surprise. Airline running late. Yeah, I know. Um, we were late, and we wanted to get there, too. It was well after 11 o'clock at night, and we shot the approach, and the tower had closed, which we can still land, but the tower had closed, and they flipped the system so that all the lights went out on the runway, and we had no way to turn them on. So we shot the approach. We got down to 200 feet, and we broke out, and we're like, you, you see anything? No, that got to go around. Push the power up, and we went around. And we found out, we didn't know, but we'd find out that the power forgot to turn the lights on, leave the lights on when they left. So we had to call operations. Hey, could you get the tower to go back and flip the lights back on because we want to land? Uh, and they did, and it was great. We came back around, we shot the approach and landed. But, but here's, here's why I'm telling you this. That runway, as effective as it was to us and to that plane and to the passengers that wanted to get to Lynchburg that night, as good as that runway was, it was absolutely useless with no light. You couldn't see it. It was essentially gone. Jesus is telling us this. Uh, when we conceal him, when we conceal him, we, we, we hurt people. Um, we do. But there's a reason we do this. When we refuse to shine his light, meaning we, we hide our greatest relationship, it hurts people. But there's a reason we do this. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? I know why I do it. Because I'm afraid to lose. I'm afraid to lose. Um, I remember on one, one particular day when I was, again, working with the airlines, we were waiting for our plane in the crew room, and the flight attendant was having another discussion um, with another pilot, and they were talking about spirituality. 
and they were talking about some book they were reading that was talking about spirituality, had nothing to do with God. They were discussing, and she was genuinely seeking. She wanted to know, like, I don't want to do what's wrong. I, I, is God real? Does it matter? You know what I said? You know, you know what I said? Nothing. Nothing. I said absolutely. And I knew her. I had a relationship with her. I had absolutely nothing. I let her walk in it. Why? Well, because I'm the captain. Um, you know, I, I just, I, I can't afford to lose any respect. That's not being salt and light. That's not, by God's grace, I was able to talk to her later because she got, she was getting married and she wanted some advice and marriage is such a great exposition of the gospel. But that, see, when we hide Jesus, when we hide God, people get hurt. But here's the problem. We can't do this. We can't do this without God. So lastly, Jesus brings God into our relationship with God. This is the key here. You see the religious leaders, those that he was speaking to, they believed that their impact from the world, their impact, how they would leave their mark on the world, was because they were right. God had given the religious leaders of the day, uh, the religious leaders of the Jews, he had given them their word. God, God, they had the word of God. They had the oracles of God. And they believe their impact came from external adherence to the law. We're right. We know God. Jesus pulls the rug out from under them by requiring a righteousness that goes beyond external obedience. One that's actually enthroned in the heart. And Jesus' entire life and ministry pushed towards this, this one good thing, this one good work. And God has put this good work under the spotlight for all eternity. You see, Jesus taught and said and did many good things. He did. But this one good work has made eternal impact, and its aftershocks are still rippling through every society. And it's the cross. You see, Jesus, in saying this, he's the true salt of the earth. He's the true salt that would preserve culture if we would follow him. But he was seen as worthless, and he was discarded, and he was trampled on. And he's the true light. They should have drugged him to Jerusalem, the city on the hill. And they should have worshipped him here. But they concealed him because he exposed darkness. He exposed self-righteousness. They tried to force him under a bath. They tried to conceal him. And they drug him out of the city, and they put him on a smaller hill. Golgotha, the place where they crucified him. See, he didn't, this was not a failed revolution. Jesus is the true king who willingly died for you. This is, this is, this is what makes this work, is that Jesus suffered that for you, to liberate you and I from bondage to sin and death, to liberate us from separation from God, to liberate us really from this impossible, useless, exhausting life of trying to, to find value and worth through our actions, from trying to, to forge a life of good works that God can accept. He's liberated us from that. By this way, he brought God into your relationship with God. Have, have you let that happen? If you think about what your life points to, ultimately all of our, our lives never point to God. Never. 
Have you let God into your relationship with God? Are you letting his work, his life, his sacrifice, are, are you letting that be what you're trusting? He's given you his kingdom, which is to say this, he has given you himself. See, when we trust him, we're actually bringing God into our relationship with God. Otherwise, the Beatitudes will crush you, and the Sermon on the Mount will not be fun. See, the more you trust him, the more you resemble him, and the more you will reveal him to others. The kingdom of God is made visible by those who are following the king. There's a reason that you want your life to matter, because you're created for it. You can't live life any other way way. You were created to glorify God, to show his value to all of creation. You were created to reveal his beauty and his value to the world primarily by serving others. Ephesians 2 tells us this. You've heard this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. Meaning this, all that is broken and bad in you, if you will trust him, that's what he conceals. So even when we do a good work, sometimes with bad motives, that's concealed. Whatever we bring to God glorifies God. And then he goes on, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's actually created good works for you. You don't even have to go find them. You have a relationship. You have a body of Christ. You have a job. You have a neighborhood. And because of the good work of Jesus, we can glorify God through good works. I'm almost 30 years old now. It's not funny. She knows me. Listen, you'll start thinking about the legacy you're leaving when you get older. Just think of it now. What legacy are you leaving? Whose story are you living? What impact are you making? See, disciples have eternal impact by allowing God into every relationship. Jesus says it, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, a good work is this. It's very simple. Anything that glorifies God. What does that mean? That's such a churchy word. It reveals to others how you value God. When your actions are motivated by God's love for you and your love and your value for him. So anything that glorifies God and anything that benefits others, anything that benefits others, that's a good work. Anything that reveals how you value God and how you love others through benefiting them, that is a good work. So how do we do this? Salt and light. How do we allow Jesus into our relationships? Well, don't conceal him. Don't hide him. Don't hide them. And Jesus has given us three spheres here. Well, at least two. The world, the city, and the house where we can be salt and light. Every relationship that you have today is not by accident. We, we, yes, we believe in a God who's big. Everything works out for his glory. Every relationship you have is an opportunity to be salt and light, to see people, to love people, to serve them. Um, and it starts here, actually. It starts in the house, right? The lamp in the house. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, it starts with those who know you and understand you best, right? First John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. It starts right, right here. 
you don't have the freedom. If you're following Christ, you don't have the freedom to remain unreconciled to anybody that God's reconciled to. You don't get that freedom as a disciple of Jesus. You got to let go of that. Um, that, that's primarily how we're salt and light. Um, secondly, in your city, those who maybe don't understand you. Cities thrive one person at a time. This happens one relationship at a time. Wherever you work, wherever you play, wherever you shop, wherever you have fun. Uh, so how do we do that? Well, do people know you go to church and that you like, that you like it? Not because you have to, then you, you have a community of faith where you're actually enriched and you like study this thing called the, do they know that? That's a, just be salt and light. Don't conceal it. Trust the Lord. He'll work in it. He'll work in it. This is our call. This is our call. Um, God has blessed us for this. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to show us examples of what that looks like where God is valued and revealed in the relationships that you have. Listen, one grain of salt does nothing, really. But many grains, it makes life delicious. Isn't life good when you know through Christ you have divine approval? And the impact that you can make as a church together for this kingdom is absolutely unlimited. Remember, weakness is an asset. You have the king let your light shine. That's our call, just to let it shine. We are salt and light. As we prepare for communion today, um, I was thinking of this verse, Psalm 34, 8. Have you heard this before? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Listen to that. Taste it and see it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And it goes on to give a beatitude. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. This is what communion is, friend. Every week we get the chance to taste and see. It's not about remembering when you became a Christian. It's not about remembering what you've done. Yes, there's a chance for confession. Yes, we need to reconcile to others. You know what this communion's about? It's about you receiving Jesus. As you take communion, you are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. You are tasting the fact that he was broken for you. Yes, his body was broken for you. Not by compulsion. Not because the Father made him. Not because the Father was mad at you. For God so loved the world. He took this on himself. We need to, remind, we need to feed on this. We need to taste this. And we need to see that the Lord is good. And we see this in communion. We get to see the bread and remember his body broken. We get to see the juice and remember his blood is poured out because of a promise. He said, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Don't forget, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the king. Kingdom's here. What great news. You, friend, you need to taste that and see this today. Um, if you are trusting in Christ, what do I mean by that? If you are trusting in him for the forgiveness of your personal sin between you and God, between you and others, if that's where you're at, and you're trusting in him for newness of life, like you've, you've let go of everything else, and he's it. If that's you, this is your table. This is where the many become one together at God's table. This is what we're, we're tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. 
So as we continue to worship, as we continue to, to, to listen to God's words and let them ricochet in our heads, this is what he wants you to do, friend. Yes, he wants you to be salt and light, but you've got to taste and see that he is good to you. Would you pray with me? Oh, dear Heavenly Father, how good it is to re- just to hear all over again that you came to save. You could have come for lots of reasons, Lord. Jesus came to save, and he was broken. His blood is poured out that we might be truly reconciled to you and have eternal life. Lord God, as, as we come before you to your table, would you bless this time? Would you bless these elements, this bread and this juice, as it represents and shows us and preaches the gospel to us? Would you bless that and bless every person here that takes this, Lord? And would you make us a body of salt and light that you will be visible, that you would never be ignored in our lives. But we need your help, and we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.